Hi, I'm Kate Waldock from Georgetown University. And I'm Luigi Zingales at the University of Chicago. You're listening to Capitalisn't, a podcast about what's working in capitalism today. And most importantly, what isn't. We just entered 2019 that promises to be the democratic candidate, democratic primaries year. Uh, probably Trump will not receive a challenge. If he will, it would be interesting. But uh, there is plenty of people willing to run for the Democratic uh, primaries. And uh, what we're interested in trying to figure out is whether any of those candidates uh, have a response to the questions that we raise in this podcast. Breaking news, the highest profile Democrat yet officially wading into presidential waters. In just the last half hour, Senator Elizabeth Warren announced the launch of a 2020 presidential exploratory committee. And so in this spirit, we're going to start uh, uh, discussing the economic platform of Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth Warren is a good example, not only because she's the first one uh, to start uh, campaigning, but also because she has written a lot and made a lot of proposals trying to deal to uh, what she thinks is wrong with capitalism. Don't worry, we're not going to do this on every single episode. So it's not like the next 20 episodes are going to be us going through the Democratic slate. But we do think that uh, Elizabeth Warren has an established record of her economic position. It's not getting enough attention. And she is one of the big contenders. And I think we should start by making a distinction between her and Bernie Sanders. Uh, Bernie Sanders did not declare he will run. But I think that uh, there is a profound uh, difference in the approaches of the two candidates, even if uh, some of the solutions might be similar and they often club together. Well, I will say that I think one of the reasons they're clumped together is because their overarching message is similar. And I think their overarching similar message is that, A, they think inequality is a huge problem, so they really don't like billionaires. Uh, And B, they think that the stagnation of wages, particularly middle and lower class wages, is a huge problem. And so you'll see them talking a lot about how, like, big corporations are doing too well and they have too many advantages, whereas the little guys and the smaller companies um, have disadvantages. And so in that sense, I think very broadly, they're similar. Yes, but maybe, Kate, I'm old-fashioned, but I still give importance to words. And uh, Bernie Sanders calls himself, and probably so, a socialist, while Elizabeth Warren goes out of her way to say that she is a capitalist to her bones, that uh, she loves competition. Um, She is not a socialist at all. I think that Bernie Sanders uses the term socialism kind of as a rhetorical tool. I think the reason he throws it out there is because he thinks that too many people on the left are in the center left and there needs to be some pull over further left. And so by taking an extreme left position, he's kind of putting himself further into the distribution, therefore making the average move over. Maybe I'm like using too many statistical <laughs> terms here, but I don't I think that he himself would acknowledge that he doesn't actually like truly believe in socialism in like the central planning sense that most real socialists would. I just think that he's way further left than many center left candidates. Again, maybe it's because I attribute too much importance to words, but uh, Bernie Sanders comes from a socialist background. Elizabeth Warren, when she was uh, younger, she was a Republican. And then uh, she was confronted with some of the distortion in the marketplace, in particular how 
low-income people get screwed in the process, and she decided to uh, do something about it. So I think that uh, this different history is quite important in understanding how different is their approach to problems. Okay. So let's talk about Elizabeth Warren's economic platform. So number one, there is one proposal uh, that I have to say I love, that is the Anti-Corruption and Public Integrity Act. I think is a very elaborate proposal that she made uh, in uh, at the Senate uh, to overrule basically the current system of revolving doors uh, in a way that is uh, quite uh, aggressive, but uh, I think uh, very much needed. And the proposal goes from uh, banning uh, lobbying by former members of Congress for a lifetime uh, to uh, restricting uh, lobbying by other federal employees for at least two years, but most likely six years, to a tax on lobbying, tax on lobbying above uh, uh, half a million dollars that is designed to finance the better staff for member of Congress. So I think that one of the justification for lobbying is that uh, member of Congress needs uh, to be informed and lobbying provides information. And she said, why don't we pay more people to collect this information directly? Uh, and I think that's a, that's a pretty uh, great idea. But I want to point out, and maybe this is because I'm an academic, but uh, I want to point out an aspect of uh, her proposal that is... Uh, not uh, very often discussed, but I think is is fantastic. That requires like disclosure of research, uh, particularly research submitted to agencies. Uh, and uh, many in many many times, you have um, lobbyists who buy research, even by famous people, and then they submit it to agencies as uh, independent research. But uh, the the people that uh, submit don't disclose where the money comes from and is not peer review. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think I remember looking through one of Trump's early economic plans. And to be fair, I think this issue got a little bit better. Um, but early on, if you looked through his citations, they were all like, it was all research that was published by like private companies or published in journals that like economists have never heard of. Yeah, I don't want to be too snobbish. I'm not saying that only stuff that comes from uh, peer-reviewed journals uh, or prestigious institution is uh, <laughs> is valid. I value ideas on the base of the idea themselves. However, when you come with empirical evidence, I think that uh, the peer review process is definitely a very good way to do that. Uh, I don't expect it to be passed anytime soon, uh, but uh, I think is uh, is not presented just uh, um, as a, a flag. I think uh, uh, Elizabeth Warren believes that this is an important thing to do and uh, is a first step in that direction. The people that would have to pass it would be the ones who were directly harmed by it, right? And so it's for that reason that it probably will never be signed into law. Yeah, it's not easy to make uh, Turkeys vote for Thanksgiving, and so it's not easy to have <laughs> congressmen vote for the fact they will never get a job in the industry uh, in the future. And and to be honest, uh, I think there is a legitimate concern about the quality of the people in the public administration. Uh, whether we like it or not, having a job afterward is part of uh, uh, the career path of many politicians. And is the only way, which uh, the only legal way, in which career politicians can make some money. So 
I like the fact that uh, she is also considering, at least in part, not for the top politician, but for the staffers, a uh, way to increase their salaries because otherwise the quality of the people involved will drop tremendously. It, there is a, a huge amount of uh, uncertainty in political life. And uh, if you don't have uh, any job afterward, only the desperate will, will take it. And that's not uh, the kind of political system we want. So, Kate, do you want to talk about the Accountable Capitalist Act uh, that is probably the, more, the boldest proposal that uh, Elizabeth Warren made and uh, the one that has generated a lot of debate? Sure. So the Accountable Capitalism Act is a bill proposed by Elizabeth Warren that concerns corporations, the corporate decision-making process, as well as corporate boards of directors. There are several parts of this bill, but the main two parts have to do with how corporations make decisions. So what are they maximizing? And also this idea that workers should be able to elect at least 40% of the board of directors. So in the Accountable Capitalism Act, the idea is that corporate decision makers, the CEO, shouldn't just be maximizing shareholder value. They should also be maximizing stakeholder value, where other stakeholders include employees, members of the community where that firm is operating, as well as customers. And so in order to make sure that corporations are maximizing stakeholder value rather than shareholder value, uh, Warren proposes that... Because companies need charters in order to operate, that large companies should have to get this federal charter um, that forces them to include the interests of these stakeholders. And if they don't do that in their decision-making processes, then they can have that federal charter revoked. And the second part uh, is a little bit more straightforward, just this idea that the board of directors that typically oversees the CEO... Um, the people who sit on it, at least 40% of them should be elected directly by the employees of the company. I guess it's worth mentioning that there's another section that concerns political expenditures as well as political donations. And the idea behind this section is that if any corporation wants to make a political expenditure, it has to get at least 75% approval by all of its directors as well as all of its shareholders. I think uh, it's important for our listeners to understand that uh, she proposes that all this should start when a company is above a certain size. Uh, I think, if I remember correctly, it's a billion in sales. So if you are mom and pop uh, and you open your little corporation uh, to run your plumbing business, uh, that's not, uh, it's not affecting you. Now, uh, this is a, a pretty strong uh, um, intervention because uh, is also sanctioned by another part of uh, the legislation that says that the federal government can revoke this charter if the company is uh, uh, engaged in repeated and egregious illegal conduct. And uh, I don't know how the two reconcile, but if illegal conduct is not to act in the interest of everybody, then this amounts to a death sentence in the hands of the U.S. federal government and uh, that's a pretty strong stuff. I agree. I also think that it's easy to say, okay, all stakeholders should be considered when corporate decisions are being made. But if you actually want to maximize the welfare of all stakeholders, that's 
almost an impossible decision to make. If you think about maximizing firm value, to say that that's the same thing as maximizing stakeholder value, I don't think that that's true. Maximizing firm value is maximizing the value of your debt and maximizing the value of your equity. And to the extent that like bondholders and lenders can't be exploited, it's basically the same thing as maximizing shareholder value. And of course, companies have to operate within certain constraints. And so they have to like meet the law and they have to make sure that they're not polluting in any illegal way. And I think that there are a lot of laws and regulations that prevent negative externalities that companies impose on society. But then to go the additional step and say these companies need to maximizing stakeholder value, which includes community and customer concerns, I do think that that really complicates their decision-making process. Wait, 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 Kate, you have been a little bit too fast, probably for most of our listeners, because what you said is correct, but you sneak in a bunch of assumptions along the way that uh, I think is used... (laughs) Oh, yeah, like you never do that, Luigi. (laughs) No, I never do that. Uh, It's useful (laughs) to unpack for our listeners. So I think it is true that if all the markets uh, for patrons of the firms, and patrons can be debt holders, can be customers, can be... Uh, employees, if all these markets are perfectly competitive, uh, then uh, maximizing firm's value or maximizing shareholders' value is the same thing as maximizing uh, the welfare of all these parts together. Uh, However, when some of these markets are not competitive or when there are uh, a lot of uh, firm-specific investment, uh, like if the workers have made some sacrifice in the past in order to work for this firm, then the story might be different. Uh, then we have situation in which you can maximize one at the expense of the others. And I think that uh, uh, where Elizabeth Warren comes from is she's concerned that there is not enough competition in this market. And uh, I disagree that the right threshold is a billion dollar because you can be a billion dollar firm with a lot of competition. Uh, in all these markets, but I do envision situation in which uh, you don't have that competition and then you do have to worry. I agree that Elizabeth Warren is concerned about not just labor, but also the environment and climate change here. But I think it's worth pointing out that she's also in favor of a bill called the Climate Risk Disclosure Act, in which public companies would have to say exactly how they're affecting the environment. And to the extent that we would believe that that was true, right? They were being completely honest about everything that they were doing to affect the environment and climate change. Then to have the environment and just like people living in the world be part of a CEO's decision-making process, that to me, it's a little bit redundant with the other act, the Disclosure Act, and it adds a lot to the complexity of the decision-making process. And it also opens up room, as you mentioned earlier, for the government to just attack any company that they think is not complying with the act in any way. So let's talk about the part of the proposed act that concerns labor relations directly. So having 40% of the board at least be elected directly by workers of the company. What do you think about that? So first of all, for our listeners, this is not uh, such a new idea as the previous one, because uh, this is what takes place in uh, Germany since World War II for the largest corporations. In fact, in Germany, they elect 50% of uh, the directors with the only caveat that in case of uh, uh, a 50-50 vote, the chairman vote counts for two, two votes 
and the chairman is appointed by the shareholders. So uh, we still leave, uh, both uh, systems leave the majority of the shareholders, but they give representation to workers. It's called co-determination. And, and the evidence in Germany is that was neither uh, such a um, sort of fix for all the problems, nor a disaster like uh, their enemies seem to represent. Uh, I don't think that really uh, changed a lot. And now we know that industrial relations in Germany are, if you want, less conflictual than in the United States. I don't know whether this is due to co-determination or is due to the fact that uh, uh, the story in Germany is different. What uh, I want to point out is uh, there is a big difference between Germany and the United States. In Germany, people tend to have one job for life. Uh, the mobility in the labor market is fairly limited. And if you enter and work for Mercedes early on in your life, you stay there for most of your life. So... As such, having a representation on a company board makes more sense. When you have a labor force that change uh, super fast, um, that representation makes less sense. Yeah, I think co-determination deserves an episode in its own, right? I mean, we could go through the literature that's been relatively mixed on the success of co-determination, but I think it's an important topic, and I think... If you're interested as listeners, uh, let us know and maybe we can do another episode on that in particular. But I mean, another thing I would add to what Luigi said about the differences between labor unions and labor representation between Germany and the U.S. is that who pays for the unions or who pays for the representation? In Germany, the laws are such that if you have like these committees set up within the corporation to help represent you on the board, then all the offices and everything those councils need in order to function are paid for by the company. Whereas in the U.S., if you're part of a labor union, then in a number of states, that labor union has the right to take a fraction of your wages as union dues. And I think that that's a huge part of why there are differences between the Germ German system and the U.S. system, right? A lot of U.S. workers would support more representation, but they don't like the idea of having to be forced to like sacrifice part of their income to a labor union. And on top of that, in some regions and in certain occupations, there's only one type of labor union that you can join. For example, when I was a grad student, I was part of GSOC UAW, where the UAW part stands for United Auto Workers. And it's like, why am I, as a finance PhD student, part of a union with a bunch of auto workers. Like, I don't know what their objective is. I don't know if they have my best interests at heart. Whereas if I knew that they were just, there was just a council within my own organization that was being paid for by the organization, I would maybe feel a little bit more comfortable with that. So I think that there are huge changes that need to take place within the United States to help reform labor rights in general. But I still agree with the spirit of this suggestion. Kate, I, I never thought of you as an auto worker <laughs> union member. Uh, that's a new side of your personality <laughs> that I'm discovering. But the more important point, and uh, I know we probably need to postpone it to the next episode, but uh, in a world of multinationals, uh, worker representation creates a, a huge problem. Uh, you're going to represent all the workers. So uh, you are going to have uh, some workers from uh, the Philippines, some workers from Cambodia, some workers from the United States. Uh, uh, and... Uh, in many of the U.S. corporations, uh, probably there are more workers uh, from not from the United States than from the United States. So they should have the majority on the board? 
Yeah, that's an interesting point that I honestly hadn't thought about. Um, if you have different types of employees, like if you're talking about Google, if you have high tech employees as well as janitors, is there a different weighting in terms of who gets more power or is it just like the raw number of people who work in each position? I think that those are all difficult issues to grapple with. When you bring up uh, Google and the power that employees of Google had in sort of uh, shaping uh, corporate policy of Google, this proves the point that uh, you don't need to have votes to have powers. Uh, in uh, talented employees that are in short uh, supply, have a huge amount of power and ca can shape the direction of Google. Uh, so in a sense, uh, and this is what the finance literature suggests, is the reason why shareholders have votes is not because they are the most powerful. In fact, they're the votes because they're the least powerful. Once they put their capital uh, into the firm, uh, they have no saying and they can be easily expropriated by all the other constituencies. That's the reason why their interests need to be protected by votes. Uh, the bond uh, holders can withdraw their money by not uh, renewing the bonds. Uh, the workers can withdraw their labor by, by leaving the firm. The customers can stop uh, buying. Uh, maybe the only one who don't have a lot of power are, are sort of the community at large, but uh, we know that the local mayor does have some influence on the way companies are, are run. So I think that uh, there is a pretty strong argument to give a primacy to the shareholders in, in most cases. So the last thing I want to say about the Accountable Capitalism Act is that I assigned an extra credit assignment in the class that I taught last semester, where I had all of my undergraduate students uh, write an essay on whether or not they agreed with the Accountable Capitalism Act or not. Um, and I was shocked. I mean, okay, so to be fair, these are all business school students. And so they were learning from me about like maximizing profits and things like that. But I was pretty shocked to find that 60% of them, roughly, did not agree with her proposal. And on top of that, the ones who did agree, I think they were very thoughtful and they said, OK, this part I think is better than that part. But on on the whole, I think that I agree with her spirit. But the ones who were against the act were like vehemently against the act. They were like, oh, it's a no brainer that we shouldn't pass something like this. Uh, this is going to like sink the country into communism. Um, I thought that it was interesting that like the rhetoric of the people who were on either side was different. It is interesting because uh, uh, she received a lot of criticism from uh, the right on this proposal. And many people have talked about socialism or transforming American capitalism into socialism because you bring some uh, workers on, on the board. Um, given the experience of Germany, I doubt uh, that's the case. Uh, but it is a little bit funny. And, and I picked up on an article that uh, Richard Epstein wrote about this. They say, if you want to apply this in general, why don't you have uh, the dean of the business school also appointed by the janitors? That's part of, uh, of the process. And, uh, and what about the unions being represented also by consumers? Uh, where do you stop this representation of our constituencies? Why, as a consumer, I cannot be represented in uh, the union that decides whether they uh, strike um, and they make it impossible for me to go by train or by plane? So... The third major part of Elizabeth Warren's platform that we want to talk about is affordable housing. And in particular, she has called for almost half a trillion dollars of investment to be set aside over the course of the next 10 years uh, to go towards affordable housing for the lowest income members of society. 
But was, what is interesting is how the BL is designed because, uh, first of all, it works on, on two margins. One, um, as some incentives to get rid of uh, local zoning rules that restrict supply to, uh, of houses in many neighborhoods. And uh, this is very much something that uh, even the, uh, the right side of the political spectrum will agree with. Uh, and uh, is fighting the so-called NIMBY, not in my backyard, that is a major cause of uh, uh, increase in house prices. So in, in that part, uh, it shows, in my view, the capitalist side of uh, Elizabeth Warren that is trying to walk through uh, market forces. But then the other side is uh, uh, she thinks that it's also important to build more houses, and uh, she proposes uh, half a trillion dollar over 10 years in building of new houses. Um, and, uh, and you wonder where does she get the money? Actually, she is planning to get the money in uh, increasing the federal estate tax. And uh, there is even an independent uh, paper showing that uh, uh, this will uh, be a balanced budget uh, proposal, which means that uh, uh, richer people will be taxed uh, to the point of uh, half a trillion in 10 years. Yeah, she says explicitly that these tax changes would only affect about 10,000 families. It must be that those people are really squeezed a lot because raising yeah. half a trillion uh, out of 10,000 people, uh, that's, that's a challenge. Yeah, absolutely. But one piece that I admire is that she seems to have focus on what are, in my view, the biggest problems of our time. One is... Uh, the fact that uh, wages don't raise enough. Uh, the second is that uh, there are problems with the cost of housing uh, that economies have shown uh, can have major impact on the ability of the country to grow. Um, and the third one is political corruption. And so those three pieces, again, I, I'm not necessarily buying all the parts of all these proposals, but the fact that uh, she has identified what I think are the right problems and she has some interesting proposals uh, on those problems, I think speaks very highly. I think that something else that Elizabeth Warren should be credited for, and also part of the reason that big business doesn't like her, is the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, uh, which was really her brainchild. I think she proposed the idea behind the Bureau in 2007. Um, this is an agency that has gone after scams, basically. It's gone after companies that cheated victims of 9-11 out of the money that they were owed. They've gone after uh, exploitative payday lending. They've gone after retirement scams or scams that were created just to uh, ensnare old people. Um, to some, They've also tried to put limits on debt-to-income ratios, in essence, limiting exploitation in the housing market, um, which is part of what contributed to the financial crisis. Uh, but unfortunately, the CFPB has since lost a lot of its powers. So I have maybe one additional criticism. Maybe you can consider this minor just by virtue of the fact that it has to do with uh, my background as a bankruptcy researcher. But amongst bankruptcy academics, some of her findings have stirred up a lot of 
controversy, um, particularly some of her research related to personal bankruptcy and what causes personal bankruptcy. She's argued that somewhere in the realm of 50 to 60 percent of personal bankruptcies are due to injury and health-related causes. And this has been hotly contested within the bankruptcy community. Um, Some have even made allegations that these findings were politically motivated. In any case, at the end of the day, I prefer her as a politician than I do as an academic. The point here is not whether you like her or not. The point is that uh, she has interesting proposals that uh, speak to the current problem in capitalism. Uh, They might not be the silver bullet. And certainly we have identified a lot of uh, uh, shortcomings. But there are serious proposals for real problems. Um, And in the spirit of not... uh, trying to overrule capitalism, but try to make it work better. As we mentioned earlier on, though, this episode was motivated by the many similarities between Elizabeth Warren's economic platform and the issues that we try to grapple with on this podcast. As 2019 progresses and more candidates announce, and by the way, this could include right-wing candidates as well, uh, we want to keep the conversation going. So if there are any presidential candidates whose economic platforms you think deserve serious consideration on the show, let us know. You've been listening to Capitalism, hosted by Kate Waldock and Luigi Zingales and produced by Derek John, a podcast of the University of Chicago Stiegler Center in collaboration with the Chicago Booth Review. You can find episode transcripts and research links at capitalism.com. Also, check out promarket.org, the blog of the Stiegler Center. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.